All right, welcome again, everybody, to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. I'm Phil Hubert, joined, as always, by Logan and John for episode number 60. On today's episode, we will be discussing the pandemic anniversary, sanding, and your strategy when mistakes happen. Hope you enjoy the discussion from today's show. Let's get started. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Magazine. Woodsmith Magazine has been the trusted source for all your woodworking information for over 40 years. From tips and techniques to furniture projects to shop projects, you'll find it all at Woodsmith Magazine. Subscribe today at woodsmith.com. Here's where I was thinking today we could go. First topic, and we've touched on this in the past because we've done two other podcasts over the last year plus on finishing. Mm Mm-hmm. And we talk about it, but I think it deserves a little bit of mention, even though everybody says that they hate it, and that's sanding. Yeah. So I will will broaden that. I will allow it to just be a general surface preparation discussion. Okay. Mm -hmm. But to me, that just ends up being code for sanding. Sanding. (laughs) So, because I think there's, and what, what brought it on is we're filming this week an episode for season 15 of the Woodsmith Shop TV show, wherein we're making bandsaw boxes. So, um, I know that Matt Kenny, who was a past guest here, does not listen to this podcast. So his ears will not bleed when we tell him that we are making bandsaw boxes and that we are using flocking. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right uh, there. Little so, sneak yeah. peek. Mm-hmm. Or, so or am, I, am I supposed to do that fast? Like, so people oh, can't yeah, really see go. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That Pause. way somebody can have a, a separate podcast or a YouTube video that says, I watched the Shop Notes podcast number 60 at 0.25 speed, and here's what I found. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Logan talks just normal speed when I do that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Mm. Anyway, when you're making a bandsaw box, there be sanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Which made me also just think in general of my project that I have as a due date for March 20th, the gentleman's dresser, which involves a hefty bit of sanding as well, or surface prep. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to hear just from you guys. Size. Right what you guys think about sanding, how you go about it, maybe when in the process. Is this an intervention to talk to me about how I um, stuck some pressure sensitive adhesive sandpaper to the broom handle? Uh, No, but we can bring that up. (laughs) I was was wondering if that's what that was today. Yeah, the the box that I'm working on is a hinged lid box, mm-hmm. and the bottom side is relieved to create feet. And we were trying to smooth out that radius, and I was using the round file, and John needed something that was roundish also. So some 80-grit adhesive back and your Quidditch equipment turned yep. into <laughs> a sanding stick. Yep. All right. Fair enough. So yeah. give, it's better grip when you're sweeping too. So mm-hmm. that's right. It's twofold, yeah. twofold yeah. tip. Yeah. So, so I guess 
I guess from my standpoint, and the proper thing to do would be pre-sand everything, right? Like, what do we, what do we say? If you're writing a book on how to woodwork, you stock prep, size parts, joinery, sand, finish, uh, assemble, right? Yeah. When possible, yeah. yes. Yeah. When possible. Uh, in my shop, it's never possible. <laughs> no, I, I take that back. I mean, there's, there is times where I will pre-sand everything, but I always end up sanding after it's assembled too. Mm-hmm. So I find myself doing it a lot um, before I assemble and after. Uh, so in my nightstands recently, uh, right now, uh, sitting next to me is one of the Matt Cremona chair kits. And I, I pre-sanded that whole thing and, and gluing it together. Yeah. Uh, there's some tight areas that it would be hard to get into. Um, so I guess I always try to pre-sand. Now, with that being said, I have found myself fairly often, and, and everybody knows that I use a lot of walnut, uh, and it's not, it's not the hardest wood in the world. I find myself denting a lot of my parts with clamps. Um mm-hmm. Which ends up requiring getting the iron out to steam the the dents out, and then I got to resand anyways. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, if I can, I will pre-sand all my parts, and I think I've said it before. Usually, I will. Um, I don't usually go film finish, so usually I will go from about one eighty grit clear up until four hundred, and my okay. four hundred is always a hand sand with yeah. the grain. Yeah, sure. So. So that's my, my usual MO. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely helps to sand pre-assembly. Like you said, if it's like casework or complicated assemblies where you're going to be, you know, sand it while it's flat, while you have flat pieces rather than you're butting up against a shelf or right. a tenon or a stretcher or something else. Or like you said, where there's tight, um, tight places where you can't really sand after. And then it's easy enough to touch up after everything is assembled if you find any dents or scratches or, or whatnot. But yeah, if it's flat, sand it and then assemble it and do your best to prevent any glue squeeze out and drips and all that stuff and save you a lot of headache down the road. But, I think that's why I always end up sanding after the fact as well is because I do always end up with some squeeze out that either mm-hmm. I, I clean up with a, a scraper or a, yeah, a chisel or whatever, yeah. and then I've come back and sanded it anyways. So, mm-hmm. Or if I'm using high glue, I'll just scrub it with hot water, but the hot water raises the grain. So, Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, there's a difference. <clears throat> that's almost more like touch-up sanding compared to, say, trying to do run all your grits before you yeah. assemble something, you know, like I'm thinking that uh, gentleman's dresser with a lot of frame and panel stuff, you know, yep. there's just a lot of corners and crevices that, uh, that need to get addressed. And it's just tough to do that after it's assembled, mm-hmm. you know, like, especially if you're doing like the inside edges of rails while not trying to introduce cross grain scratches into the adjoining panel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, you can very quickly, if you are trying to do that, you can very quickly with random orbital sander put gouges in adjoining oh, yeah. pieces. You sure. know what I mean? If you run, if you run that edge into 
the case, case side, like if you're sanding a shelf, it's going to leave some really deep scratches perpendicular to the grain on the next piece. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's an eyesore. Yeah. yeah. And it's just weird. So yeah. yeah, definitely when I'm ever doing frame and panel, I'm very cognizant to pre-sanding all of the panels and um, jointing the, the inside edges of the frame. So they're nice and smooth and hopefully I don't have to do a lot of sanding once it's assembled, but yeah, just being aware that those surfaces are going to be hard to sand after the fact. So, well, John, I've noticed that recently, I don't know if it's just recent or if I've just noticed it recently, you've been using the drum sander a lot too. Yeah. For, for panels and stuff. And, oh yeah. Yeah. And it works well. Mm hmm. It definitely, it's better um, just uh, as far as um, planing things down. You're always going to get those little nicks and and stuff from the planer, especially our shop planer that everybody <laughs> uses and abuses. And then you also get a lot of the snipe and, and different, yeah, right. you know, it's, it's just not as flat. So I try to take it over to the, the drum sander and uh, it just gives it a little bit uh, flatter, finer structure you know, surface than what the planer does. And it saves on hand sanding later. Yeah. I, I will say I've noticed, and I think it's just the function of the, the sandpaper grit that we put on there. If you, if you do a lot of heavy sanding on those, um, and I'm not saying stuff that you've ran through there, John, but like Mm -hmm. my nightstands, I ran those through there. Um, it puts some, it can put some pretty deep, parallel lines in the in the work piece from the sandpaper i think we have yeah. like 100 100 in there maybe 120 yeah. i mean yeah it's still pretty rough but at least it's you pretty got aggressive. flat consistent surface and then you can come back and and yeah you know, it's, it's a good place to start with the yeah. random orbital sander or hand yeah. sanding or whatever you're gonna do well, i remember last year logan when you did all your cutting boards yeah and you run you put those through the sanding drum and those were all end grain cutting boards. So getting those horizontal scratches out of a bunch of end grain cutting boards was a, an exercise in patience. Nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So then that was when I decided, (laughs) I decided to break out my six inch. uh, I have a six inch box sander somewhere around here and you put it, that thing in like rotary mode. Oh man, you can plow through some material. And that, when I discovered the rotary mode really took those scratches out. Then I made some real good headway. But yeah, it's like you run it through the drum sander at 120 grit, and then you start sanding at 80 grit, yeah. basically. But yeah. But I guess you know that. With that being said, I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not. Um, I recently uh, it was probably a little bit after Christmas. Maybe a little bit before Christmas. Anyways, uh, recently I bought a nice sander. I bought a used nice sander. I bought a, a Merca Daros um, six-inch sander. Oh, sure. And I have noticed, I, I enjoy, I don't, I'm not going to use the word enjoy in sanding in the same sentence, <laughs> but sanding has become a lot less brutal with that thing. <laughs> um. Well, it, it, I think, and I think it's just because it removes stock so quickly that what used to take maybe an hour to sand now takes 30 minutes because I can go through the grits twice as quick. Sure. Um, 
I mean, it's don't get me wrong, it's a very expensive sander. He used it was pretty pricey still, but it was for somebody that hates sanding like me, it was well worth it because I just, you know, the difference between that and my old, um, it's actually every sander I've had besides that Merca have been a, a Bosch, um, and even my Bosch, my little random orbit Bosch. After about thirty minutes of sanding, my hands are all tingly, you know, from vibration. Oh, yeah, um, but not with not with that one. So that's helped. That's helped my sanding, and it's helped the quality of my projects as well. Because I don't dread sanding as much, so I don't try to fly through it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you know, from from a quality standpoint, what I'm putting out of my shop, it was well worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing that I found, speaking of random orbital sanders, um, through the years is that it always takes longer to sand things when I'm buying the sandpaper because sandpaper is not cheap. <laughs> and I just sit there and it's like, I'm not going to switch. I'm not going to switch. I'm not going to switch. I'm just going to keep using this piece of sandpaper. But if it's, I'm using the shop sandpaper, oh, yeah. as soon as that gets dull, rip it off, throw it away, <laughs> slap on a new piece and you just keep keep going it's it's definitely a psychological thing of like knowing when that piece of sandpaper is not working efficiently anymore and it's just time to change out and it's usually a lot sooner than you want it to but yeah what i think is kind of funny is uh woodworkers will spend you know easily upwards of 40 bucks on a router bit and how much for table saws and band saws and a nice router or a jointer or something like that. Gotta but they money, will, <laughs> you will use every last grit on sandpaper mm-hmm. until it's just the paper backing. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. uh, I, I guess I was also thinking of this, you know, last week we talked about where I was really loving the old master's water-based finish. And yeah. I use the, the water-based finish brushes from Gramercy tools, from tools for working wood. And those mm-hmm. are pricey brushes. It's like 25, 30 bucks a piece, depending on the size. Sure. And I was thinking like, that's, that's pricey for a brush yet, you know, compared to a router bit, you know, like I'll drop good money on a quality router bit. But for some reason, when we think of like sandpaper or finish brushes, then it's like, how low can you go for the price? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for know, me, like, I, I was just say, I'm not very good at taking care of brushes when I'm done with them. So they're usually disposal, <laughs> disposable brushes, no matter how that's, expensive they were. That's what I was going to say. Like, I, I went through that period where I did the same and I still do. It's like. You know, here in the Midwest, we have Menards. And a lot of times you can get like a 32-pack Menards br- bristle brushes for free after rebate, right? So it's like right. I end up with all these crap, absolutely crap brushes. Yeah. But, you know, if I'm slapping a coat of paint on something, I probably don't really care. I did recently, I, I bought a um, natural bristle brush for something that doesn't really matter, linseed oil. Is what I no. bought it for. It was when I was, I know, I was finishing my my dining room table, and I was out at the the Woodsmith store here in Des Moines, and I saw that they had like nice brushes. I'm like, you know what? 
this whole podcast was playing in my head. It's like, why did I invest all this timing stuff into this table when I'm just going to use a crap brush or crap sandpaper on it, right? So I did. I bought I bought a nice natural bristle brush for linseed oil that you don't really you wipe off anyways. So mm-hmm. right, like dumb. But <laughs> now I've noticed I've noticed in since I've become um, more involved with wood turning that sandpaper is something that and I you're right I've always done it it's like you always just stretch it just a little more than you know you should like you feel the sandpaper that's on you feel a new sheet you're like okay yeah this is degraded about 40 grits you know mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's went from 120 to like 300 right um and there was a I bought a but um there's a, a guy in Ireland by the name of Glenn Lucas I bought his uh, wood turning DVD set and one thing he said, he's a production turner. So the guy turns hundreds of bowls a week, right? Uh, and he said, change the paper before you think you have to. He's like, don't get it in your head that you're going to speed up or save yourself any money by holding on to that sandpaper for the last you know, couple minutes. He's like, you're actually better off just getting a new piece of paper. Yeah, you might throw 50 cents away by swapping out to a new pad but you're going to save yourself a ton of time on the next grits. So, right. you know, it's, it's one of those things I just, I just ordered some three inch. I don't have them here. Uh, three inch sanding pads for my little mandrel sanders that I use. And I want to say, you know, like these guys here, um, I just ordered 600 sheets, 600, three inch discs. Um, and it was like 50 bucks total mm-hmm. for the 600 sheets which i didn't think was too bad but thinking that they're only three inches and i go through them really quickly um but at the end of the day i would rather spend that money knowing that as i sand i'm going to end up with a finish that i'm happy with sure you know rather than saying i can still see a, a line in this project and i know i could probably get it out if i do stop and i go back a couple of grits to get it out yeah. Um, and that's another thing like I used to do. And I, I don't know if you guys do that or if you guys have done that in the past where it's like you start at, you know, 180, go to 220. And if you go, do go higher, sometimes imperfections pop up. Sure. Like the higher you go. I've noticed mm-hmm. that actually from our drum sander. If, if the drum sander hesitates at all as it's pulling a panel through it, it will leave like a comp- – it's not really a compression line but kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the times it doesn't show up until you get to a little bit higher grit. Yeah. And it used to be that I would just be like, you know what? I'm going to, it's just going to be gonna, Well, it's either going to be there. Or I'm going to take the 600 grit pad and I'm just going <laughs> to mod out, which doesn't work. Uh, and I guess as I've progressed as a woodworker, I've decided, you know what? No, it's better for me just to, as soon as I see it, stop, go back three grits, take it out. And then, get back to where I'll be. Cause I'm always going to see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times where I find where I'm sanding and ble- blemishes pop up is like with plywood or veneer. Like when you're sanding plywood or veneer, you'll see like a blemish and you just keep sanding and it keeps getting bigger and you just keep sanding. And, <laughs> and it's like, I cannot sand this out. <laughs> I mean, what's the problem here? So. You can, you just have to go through the whole panel. Yeah. And right. Pretty soon. You just, yep. it's just MDF. Yeah. So. Yeah. So now Logan 
you have an affinity towards hand tools, where does that fit into your surface prep? You know, like for example, uh, on your dining room table. So on my dining room table, I did not hand plane the top at all. I will say that straight up, flat out, did not hand plane the top at all. The legs and the aprons, I hit every surface of those with my little miter planes that I made. Sure. Um, and that allowed me to basically skip right to 320. Okay. I think it's 320 that I have. Um, because, it, I mean, it get, and quite honestly, it gave me a good enough surface that I probably could have put a finish on it. Um, but I don't finish straight from the hand plane usually. Usually I'm going to hit everything with sandpaper anyways. So it just allowed me to skip those grits. Um, sure. I did the same thing with my nightstands. Um, I hand planed every surface. Um, the, uh, the drawer boxes were made out of... I had a board of bird's eye maple that I bought from Menards. I mean, it was just in their mixed maple stack. So I brought it home and when I, uh, that was probably four years ago, finally used the board. Um, but when I ran it through the planer at work, it tore, I mean, it tore the crap out of it. Sure. Uh, so when I brought all my drawer parts home, I, I hit them with my number four and a half. Uh, and I mean, just, it was unbelievable. And not only do I get enjoyment out of doing that, but it allows me to skip a bunch of grits, which was was great so because i'll use a hand plane as often as i can but you know like if you got a glued up panel there's just you know i'm gluing up a panel for appearance and chances are the green direction is going to switch around in there mm -hmm. yep. and depending on my last sharpening job of my plane i almost look at my hand planes as more of an intermediate step for like flattening sure. and general smoothing. And then we'll use uh, you know, like a scraper, card scraper before I switch to sandpaper, you know? So, because yeah. I like to, I don't know. And maybe it's the contrarian in me, but I just feel like the woodworking journalism sphere always says that everybody hates sanding. And I don't know that that's necessarily true or we yeah. just repeat it enough so that everybody thinks that they should hate sanding. Mm -hmm. When I don't think that it's necessarily a job that you hate. I think if you're doing it wrong, you can hate it. Um, I think that's the case for a lot of woodworking. You know, there's a significant number of people out there that hate using routers. And mm -hmm. I think that has to do with how you're using a router. Yeah. So anyway, I. All that being said is there are some parts of sanding that I actually enjoy. And when you're getting down to, you know, like those, these bandsaw boxes, when you're, when you're at the 220, 320, 400 stage, <clears throat> all of a sudden that surface kind of metamorphoses into something that's really buttery soft and is going to really stand out. Like all the grain and the, the pores and, you know, the distinctiveness of the wood starts to jump out. So, yeah, but I will say I will avoid like laborious sanding as much as I can with alternative tools, whether it's a, a hand plane or a card scraper or, <clears throat> um, you know, like removing tool marks when doing curves, you know, I'll, I much prefer using files and rasps, you know, or a spoke shave than trying to just sand away mm -hmm. blade marks. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the last the last tabletop I did was for that um, 
farmhouse table I did a couple years ago. And I I actually hand planed almost the entire surface, but I had the same issue where the panel, the, the board grain direction was switching. Because, of course, when you're gluing them up, you're not thinking, I'm going to hand plane this, so I want to make sure the grain's all going in the same direction, <laughs> which probably would be a, you'd probably do yourself a favor if you did. But, uh, so the grain direction switched on me on that. Now, I, what I ended up doing was hand planing the majority of the boards, but then right where the seams were, I mean, you could get within probably an inch of the seams, maybe a little bit less. Um, I have a, uh, a number 80 cabinet scraper. Sure. It's just one of the black cast iron um, yeah. cabinet scrapers. And I hit that over the joints, and that works really well. And it, it leads me to think, you know, when I use that last, and uh, recently I've been using my card scrapers a little bit more. Actually, I've been using, a, I have a Stanley 12 and a half veneer scraper. Uh, hmm. and it leaves a beautiful surface. I don't know why I don't scrape surfaces more because that would avoid mm-hmm. a lot of sanding as well. Yeah. Um, especially if something's tar- tear out prone. Yeah. So John, when you're doing, uh, props for the magazine or for the TV show, so you have a glued up panel, um, or you're taking something from the planer, where, what grit would you start sanding? Um, I don't probably, depending on the material and how rough it is, um, or how much I have to take off, I might jump in at like 80, but if it's already pretty smooth, probably 120 and go up from there. Yeah. So. Because I feel like that's kind of my default. It's like, I'll start with 120, see what happens. And then if I have to go back to 100 or 80, that's when yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I think, yeah, 120 is usually the default. And I think it took some, um, you know, psychological steps to like, hey, I can start with 80 here or 60, you know, go down to the, the really heavy grits. Yeah. To take a lot off and and not be too worried about now if it's like um i mean plywood or something with a thin veneer i wouldn't go that low but right so just personal preference you know that's that's one thing that took me a long time to realize is that i guess it didn't take me a long time to realize it but i was never told when i started learning woodworking in high school that a jointer and a planer are not surface they're not surfaces that you should put a finish on (laughs) <laughs> like I never understood that until I started getting into woodworking more after I got out of high school. I was like, Oh, that's why I can see scalloped edges on some of the yeah. stuff I built. Like that's what that is. <laughs> it's not curly white Oak. It's yeah. scallop marshmallow <laughs> jointer. <laughs> We're buying the pre-milled stuff from Menards yeah. or home Depot. And we're like, that's yeah. finished ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so wrapped in plastic. It's gotta be yeah. ready for finish. Yeah, exactly. As long as it's four coats of oil paint. That's right. <laughs> but, yeah, you guys made some interesting points, though, because, like, early on, I wasn't a big hand tool person, and it's like the the solution was always sanded away, but then, you know, you you see other people using card scrapers or hand planes, and it's like, oh, that goes a lot quicker, you know, removing material and getting it smoother, and then jump in on the sanding 
rather than trying to take all the material away, you know, just by brute force and sandpaper and yeah and whatnot. So, I mean, that's helpful to, to learn, um, just better, I mean, techniques, even from like the bandsaw, like the better you are at the bandsaw for these bandsaw boxes, the less sanding there's going to be, or maybe a sharp blade here or there mm-hmm. router bit would prevent sanding down the road. Or, yeah. you know, burn marks are really hard to to sand out. So if you have dull tools or you're not feeding them into the machines correctly, um, you're going to get a lot more burn marks and a lot more sanding. So it's really helpful to learn uh, other techniques that are going to lead up to that at the end. So, yeah, that's that's one thing that I cannot stand. Sanding is rounded profiles. Like, I just can't stand it. Like, I don't, I do not have the patience for it. I'll be the first one to tell you. I cannot, cannot stand it. I know a lot of guys will make themselves, uh, like, scratch stock scrapers, oh, basically, sure. to, to help clean them up. And I've, I've never tried it. I just don't use them any rod profiles on edges of stuff. But, whew, yeah, you get a burn mark on the edge of some, like, you know, white oak grain or something. Like, old Phil, you, the gentleman's dresser, there was a burn mark from a blade on the end of the door and we hit that with oh, an yeah. airplane and just took it right off you know oh yeah you'd be yeah. there for 40 minutes sanding probably right and th- and i was you know i had started with sand you know with a uh random orbit sander and i was using 80 grit or something like that and it's just you know end grain is just tedious to sand so if you have yeah. options for heavier stock removal without it looking like it's been gnawed, mm-hmm. you know, by rodents or something, you know, then that's a lot better. Yeah. I feel like we should also do a public service announcement for all of our listeners um, that use a standard palm sander. Do yourself a favor and get a random orbit sander. Right. Like growing up, all my dad had was a quarter sheet palm sander. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when the first time I picked up random, random orbit sander, I was like, Oh my God, this is what sanding is supposed to be like. Yeah. <laughs> or for everybody who does use the quarter sheet jitterbug sandpaper, like or sanders. Why? I, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm legitimately interested because my dad had one of those and I used it. And then when he yep. got a random orbit sander, it's like, why do they even make these anymore? Like, yeah. I don't understand. Well, and, yeah. And what my dad's was, for. yeah, my dad's was cause it was old. Right. I think it was, I mean, it was, it probably was the precursor to a random mm-hmm. orbit sander, at least when my dad had it. Uh, yeah. But it's like, he, he still has it. I just helped him move last weekend and I saw it in his toolbox. I'm like, <laughs> Like I need to buy you a better sander because ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Like I quite honestly think you'd be faster hand sanding. I think so because I just don't understand. Like I said, I, you know, if you're a fan or an aficionado of this type of tool, I would love to hear from you in the comments or an email or something like that. And and I'm willing to learn, but I just, you know, I can. You want to know why? Yeah, why? Because if I have a five-inch random orbit sander, I can do a wide variety of sanding tasks. Mm-hmm. And I can put super fine sandpaper on that random orbit sander and get a surface at least as better, if not better, than a little quarter sheet. Mm-hmm. 
But if you have one of those quarter sheets, you really get the enjoyment of like cutting the paper to size and then getting it <laughs> clamped in there so it doesn't pop out and mm-hmm. you know that that feeling of success when it yeah, when tearing it all works the edges out. like the pieces pop oh. you know one end's popping out and you cut it too short or yeah you know. this is this is a subject that like somehow got locked away in my memory because now I'm having these horrible flashbacks <laughs> to high school and that's all we had. And I remember the spring clamps opening up halfway through sanding, and then the the clip is like banging against yeah. your surface and putting dents all over. Oh God! Mm. I must have I must have subconsciously locked that in a vault. Yeah, I had picked up one of those when I shortly after I started at Woodsmith. Uh, found it at a rummage sale. It was a Makita. So you know, Makita makes sweet tools. Yeah. And you know, when you're at a rummage sale, you really can't test drive something like that. Mm-hmm. And the price was right, so I just picked it up, bought it, and that thing rattled like a, you know, '76 Monte Carlo, you know, and just. Uh, so I got it home and I kind of tore it apart, tried to rebuild it and get it working right, and it did for a little bit, and then just crapped out. And then I was yeah. like, "This is dumb. I'm going to get a random orbit sander." <laughs> yep. So. Yeah. So I guess with that being said, what's your guys' preference on sandpaper? Do you have a preference on sandpaper? Like brand? Or... Not free stuff, John. Not not the work stuff. <laughs> I prefer that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just magically come, like, I find it in the drawers and just always re- reappears. Magic yeah. unlimited, sandpaper. Unlimited stock. No. Uh, I'm a adhesive-backed roll of sandpaper sanding for all my hand sanding stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then... Uh, I usually try and spend a little bit more on sanding discs, whether it's like the, who makes the 3X? Norton, like the 3X, yep. or uh, Merca has some really good stuff. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I I almost never buy sheets of sandpaper with the caveat, unless it's like uh, silicon carbide sandpaper. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. you know, maybe like in the like 200 to 220 to 800 grit range, you know, where I'm using that for sharpening or flattening something, you know, Mm -hmm. or um, smoothing out coats of finish, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I went from the three brands that I usually stick with are uh, Norton, like that guy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Those usually work pretty well. Um, Merca. Uh, that's what we've always had at the shop. So I started buying these out at the the store here in town and they, they work really well. They have a couple different lines. I like their iridium stuff better than the, they have the Merca gold. I like the iridium. I don't know why it's a different, it's a different abrasive. Um, it just seems like it lasts a little bit longer and it feels like, it feels like the 150 cuts a little finer than 150, which I'm okay with. Um, and then I also found this, I've had this one for years and I don't, I'm, I'm sure it came from Amazon. Um, but it is sun gold abrasives. Um, that one, that one actually, it's my 400 grit that I have and it, it lasts quite a long time hand sanding. I mean, they're, they're pads they are four inch pads and I don't have, or they're five inch pads and I don't have a five inch sander anymore, but, um, I wrap these around a sanding block and use them and they work really well. Um, this, 
when I was telling you guys I ordered these discs. So the discs I usually order are from uh, turningwood.com. Um, Steve, I think Steve Worcester out there. Um, and his are Merca. I don't know if you could see the Merca Bulldog on the back of his mm -hmm. disc. Oh, yep. And he, he, I don't think it's him. I think it's his wife stamps every one of them with the grit on it. So like 120 grit, which is fantastic as you're using them. Sometimes occasionally you pull off a, a disc, you throw it in the drawer and then you're like, Oh, Hey, that disc is still good. And you, you can see what grit it is. Um, these three inch ones I just ordered. <laughs> it was kind of like a weird shady black market deal kind of, uh, cause a guy, <laughs> like a guy posted in a Facebook group on like one of the wood turning Facebook groups. And he's from Canada, right? And he's mm. basically running this uh, importing business for abrasives. Not only sandpaper, but just abrasives in general. And somehow he's like, hey, I ended up with a bunch of overstock three-inch discs. You know, who needs some at, like, clearance pricing? Because when they're gone, they're gone. <laughs> and I was like, sure, send me, <laughs> send me 100 of these six grits. And they were dirt cheap. I will say they don't last near as long as the Merca. Like, so while my upfront cost was less than the Merca, I think I ended up paying like 59 bucks or something like that for the 600 pack. And if I bought the Mercas, they would have been close to a hundred bucks. Um, while I may have saved money up front, I'm probably used twice as many sanding pads because they just don't last as long. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's, it's fine for what it is. Um, but, uh, I think with sandpaper, it's definitely, and we've said this before with sandpaper, you get what you pay for. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, speaking of sanding discs, we've gotten the, the mesh style sanding disc. Yeah. I don't oh, know yeah. if there were the samples before. Have you guys used those? Um, I've used them in the past and they were just kind of meh for me. I didn't think there were anything special, yeah. but yeah, I mean, the the one time I actually will prefer those is if I'm sanding, like, wet wood, like uh, that little urn behind me. Mm -hmm. Wet wood, when you're sanding it, loads up with sap, and it, oh, cake, yeah. and it will just cake the paper instantly. The mesh works really, really nicely for those. Otherwise, I've never... Yeah, I know some people swear by it, but I just haven't had the same yeah. success yeah. or noticed that it either lasts longer or does a cleaner job or whatever. Yeah. So. so let me let me ask you guys this while we're still talking about sanding. Do you guys blow off your project between grits? Because there are some sanding gurus that say you need to vacuum or blow your project off between grits. Mm -hmm. Because there's some 120 grit left on there when you go to the 220. <laughs> I don't personally. I don't clean it off, I guess, till the end when I'm yeah. all done. That's just me. I usually brush it off rarely will i uh vacuum but that would probably be my other i don't have a compressor in my shop so i'm using a using a shop vac and i'll suck it up that way mm -hmm. you need one of these phil right <laughs> the little pure blower i say i the only time i actually ever like i only blow it off my project if i'm in the shop turning Cause I have air, I have a hose right there. So I do. Oh yeah. Um, I, I like, if I'm in here, uh, sanding something, I, I will vacuum it before I put finish on it, but sure. I don't worry about it in between. So. All right. So just before we got started here, John, you remarked that like 
either this week or next week is the one year anniversary of us all pandemicking and working from home mm -hmm. and we closed down the studio for a few months and yeah so on yeah. the one year anniversary i thought we'd just do a mental health check-in with everybody <laughs> i'm crazy as ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just reminiscing about that because i was going through my email inbox and i was deleting old emails and i got all the way back to early march 2020 and it was just like reading these emails like oh man we were so naive back then we didn't know what was coming <laughs> what was coming the next week and and how long it would last and yeah and all that so it's just kind of interesting to go back down memory lane of of not knowing what was coming and then how we handled business after that of just like everybody working from home and not seeing each other or you know, all the zooming and skyping and emailing and yeah all that stuff so now it seems more like second nature but just looking back it's it's funny to see how naive we were and and all that so <laughs> you know it's funny because i think that i think you're right like when we when they said so our company sent out an email basically saying hey we're going to suggest that everybody works from home you know bring your computer yada yada I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a cool, like, two- or three-week thing. Like, you know, work from home. Let me change of pace for a little bit. Mm -hmm. One year later. <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't but, – that was, like, March, and we didn't even come back into the studio until – it was, like, June, it seemed like, to start shooting again. So, yeah. I mean, it yeah. was full quarantine for several months and then partial after that. And Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and quite honestly, like, I have – I have enjoyed, um, so quite obviously, you know, anybody watching YouTube, I'm sitting on my work computer. Uh, like, I enjoy being in my shop working, even if I'm just sitting here working on magazine stuff all day, if I'm writing copy or whatever, working on artwork or whatever. Um, I find it more relaxing for me to be in my shop doing that because if I need a five-minute break, I can stand up and I can, you know, go through a drawer and get rid of some stuff. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Rather than sitting at a desk in the office where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm just sitting there kind of pounding through work and then you might escape to the shop across the street for a couple hours. Um, I don't know. I've, I've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I will say though, we, us three and Becky and the rest of our film crew kind of has the benefit of being able to go in um, and film, you know, with proper precautions and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we still have some human interaction where I know some people are like, I miss talking to everybody. Yeah. And some people are like, I'm never going back. <laughs> so <laughs> I hate talking to everyone. I, yeah, I don't want to <laughs> talk to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed the, the working in my own shop until about November. And then it was like, <laughs> Oh, it's cold now. And yeah. I don't like this anymore. And so yeah. it was nice to be able to come in and, and work here with minimal, you know, there's not a lot of people in here in the shop and stuff. So, but spring is around the corner and starting to warm up again. So yeah, time to dust off my shop and get cracking at that again. So, yeah. And I think that's kind of it for me as I've been feeling a little cooped up just working from home in the basement. And then, uh, my kids are both home for school at home. And it's been tough because they'll get done with school 
middle of the afternoon and they're ready for, you know, high activity stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I still have a couple of hours to work and it becomes mm-hmm. more distracting, especially yeah. because like John, I can't get out to my shop or I can't be out yeah. there. Don't want to be out right. there. It's limited on the things you really can cold. do in, yeah. uh, in the cold and how long you can be out there. So, yeah, but. that that would be hard, I guess, not being able to get into the shop. Maybe that's why I've enjoyed it so much because mine is in the basement. That, right. Mm-hmm. You know, having having the kids at home for the first couple months was very hard. Mm-hmm. That that was the most difficult thing for me. The the transition from working from home and working in my own shop versus oh, working yeah. in the shop there, you know, in our office, uh, that was all easy. It was it was the kids that was the problem. So, yeah, and they were, I mean, they were, they were good. They just didn't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. (laughs) I will say that I have really enjoyed the, you know, over last spring, summer and fall, how much I did enjoy working in my own shop, whether it was stuff for the magazine or on my own projects that I was Mm -hmm. able to really put that space to use a lot more and help me refine I don't know. Uh, I think you've found this, Logan. Like, the more you spend time, and even John, like, the more you spend time in your shop, the more you change it to suit your woodworking, and also the more it changes you. Like, how you spend time, where you see needs, or, you know, like, hey, I have this bundle of tools that I've really come to enjoy now, or this is ridiculous that I have this stuff and it's going out as soon as spring cleaning weekend comes. Yep. Yeah. Mm. I think it's, if, if you have, which was the boat I was in, it's like, if you have an hour or two a week to get in your shop, you, you kind of just make the most of that time. Right. But right. when you're spending a, a much more significant amount of time in your shop, then it's like, okay, let's take a step back, get a little bit different perspective on it because now it's like, Hey, I actually, I have to work in here. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the, uh, I guess from my standpoint, it's as close to being forced to make a living out of my shop as I will probably ever have. Yeah. You know, uh, because I'm not, I'm not going to make furniture full time out of my shop. That's not my plan in life, but um, yeah. And it's, I think it's also given us a, at least it's given myself a different perspective um, for magazine stuff uh, because we do get, I think we get a little jaded that we have all these tools in the shop at, at the office. Um, so it's like, well, yeah, of course I'm going to cut those mortises with the mortising machine because that's what I have. Right. Uh, but when you're in your shop working, it's like, okay, I don't have that. So what am I going to do instead? So, right. I think I think from that standpoint, it's been it's been good for a uh, perspective check. I guess it's the best way to, to word it for myself. Yeah. But. All right, John, you got anything else you want to add to that? No, that's it. No. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the last thing that I had on my agenda for this episode was to walk through walk through a you know an error in your project building. You know, like what 
do you do when you see it or when it happens? And then, you know, maybe what are your thought processes on what, what to do following that? <clears throat> For example, and I'll start because it's only fair. I'm working on this, uh, this lidded box and it's not really an, this time I don't believe it was an error on my part. So I have a, I have a glued up blank here, two pieces of walnut with half inch plywood in between two pieces of beech and quarter inch high plywood in the middle. So it gives kind of a fun pinstripey look to it. Mm -hmm. I glued it up and I had planned for this part, for those who are watching on YouTube, this edge of the blank to be my front edge and then the other to be the back. However, when I cut it out on the bandsaw, all of a sudden on my little center pinstripe of quarter inch plywood, I ended up with this, I don't know, dark patch in the plywood. Mm -hmm. And then on the top, there's another dark, longer dark patch, which I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't, it's not that big a deal, but the opposite face edge looks super cool, flawless, mm -hmm. nice. However, the process of making this box, one of the first things you do after you glue up the blank is to drill the hinge holes for the brass rod for the hinge. So I had those hinge holes drilled already for what should have been, you know, the front of the box. So what I'm going to do is I've drilled new holes so that I'm going to put what used to be the front as the back so that I have, when the back, when the box is done, I have that clean look. I mean, that flaw in the top is still going to be there no matter what. But I feel like if it's at the back of the box, it's going to be less noticeable or less prominent of a feature. Mm -hmm. My dilemma now is, do I fill those unneeded holes now? Or do I wait till the end of the project and then fill them after, you know, before putting on a finish or something like that? So, mm -hmm. you know, and I could use mm -hmm. dowels to fill it or, you know, wax putty sticks, which is probably what I'll do because I feel mm -hmm. like I get a less conspicuous result that way. Yeah. It's only an you eighth inch. Those, the What's extra that? holes, right? Yeah. You're talking about the extra holes? Yeah. Um, I guess in the cases like that in the past when I've had, you know, I'm trying to change something or fix, uh, uh, something like that. It's like making the decision, do I want to try to hide it with, like, in your case, it would be like a wood plug, but it's right. still going to be visible because it's going to be a different gray. It's going to be ingrain on that plug, and it's, so it's going to be darker. Or do I go all out and make it into a feature, and I just put a brass pin so it matches symmetrical with the actual hinge. Right. And, and then tell people, it's like, oh, it's so, like, to trick people so you don't know which <laughs> side of the box to open. Only I know what side of the box to open. Right. So I've done that in the past because I'm trying to think of like a, a project uh, that I was building and I it was out of Douglas fir and I, I think I rabbited the wrong edge 
of something and I had to fill that. And it's like, do I fill that with fur, like Douglas fur and try to make it go away? Or do I, and what I did was I filled that little rabbited corner with walnut and now yeah. it is like a walnut stripe. It's a design feature sure. rather than like trying to hide it, but it's still visible. So I guess that's kind of the decision you need to make. Is it, if, if I make it stand out, does it look like I did it on purpose and now it's a feature or can I hide it and it's going to disappear and no one will ever know type thing. Right. So kind of like when yeah, I, I guess, uh, yeah, what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago with the, uh, the doors on my cabinet where I uh, bored the the hinge holes at 40 millimeters instead of 35 millimeters. I could plug that hole and the plug was going to be on the inside of the door and covered up mostly by the hinge anyway. So you didn't see it anyways. So that's like going to completely disappear where if it would have been something like on the front of the door, it would probably still be somewhat visible. So then you got to make a different, I guess, choice there. Yeah. So, yeah, I say I guess that's I would take case by case in this instance <clears throat> I would put brass in it yeah it would be symmetrical with what was there or what is going to be there so sure. I wouldn't worry about that that's what I would do that's what I would um, do but in there, there's other instances where if it's something I know that's there and I know I can do it very inconspicuously then I will patch it yeah now, is that something that you would do, like, right off the bat? Like, you would try last and... Last thing. Last thing. Okay. Yep. And uh, I guess, again, it, it depends. But, um, like, uh, for example, um, my nightstands I was doing, uh, there was a, a section in one of the pins on... Or one of the tails on the dovetails that I knew was going to land on a knot. And it landed square on that knot, and I cut right through it, and the knot fell out. So, so basically, my tail was missing a huge chunk. Yeah. So initially, my thought was, uh, okay, first of all, my first thought was, I'm going to use that for my wife's side of the bed, because that way I can position it so that tail is facing the wall where nobody's ever going to walk, right? Like, nobody's ever going to walk and squeeze in between the wall. I only have a foot and a half there. So nobody's going to squeeze their head over there and look at it. So, so I put it in an inconspicuous spot to begin with, but right. I also decided to try to fill it. Um, this is something I've seen on the wood turning forums, fill it with, uh, uh, coffee grounds and super glue. Sure. And I'm like, okay, it's going to look like coffee grounds and super glue. I will be a monkey's uncle that you can't tell where, the coffee grounds start and where the walnut and grain stops. It's unbelievable mm -hmm. how close it matched. I mean, it's crazy. It looks, yeah, it looks like a knot, but it doesn't look like it shouldn't be there. Sure. So I guess that was, um, you know, in that instance, if it's a part that I cut wrong and I can fix, um, I, I texted you guys when I was building my dining room table, I measured my stretchers, my, my short stretchers, measured those too long by 10 inches. Like I put, I clamped everything together and I glued one in and I clamped the entire table together just to get a sense of it. And I was like, this looks really wide. This looks really <laughs> wide. And I measured it. I'm like, Oh shoot. I'm a super genius. And I made that 10 inches too wide. So I had a, I, I 
at that point, I'm like, well, my best bet is to cut it off and try to route a new loose tenon in there and stuff like that, um, which is what I did, and it worked fine. Yeah. Uh, I've, over the years, decided in in my instance, it's better for me just to stop, ditch that part, make a new part. Sure. I've I've tried to fix stuff in the past. You know, you cut mortise in the wrong spot, and I try to plug it. And to me, I'm always going to know it's there. I'm just going to make a new part if I have the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a decision I guess you you should look at too. Is like, am I going to be fighting this all the way through the rest of the project and just you know cut bait and make a new part, or can I salvage this and make it work? So. Yeah. And I think the thrifty side of me is the part that always struggles with trying to make it work and fix it when it ends up either taking longer, usually work looks a lot worse, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. part of it is, you know, I don't have a lot of times I don't have the extra material to make a new part. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's one of the things that kind of gets me is that I'll end up having to do that. The other thing is the um, the psychological damage that that happens when that happens. You know where the blow you, to the ego. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm I'm past that point where I realize yeah. that as soon as I start cutting wood, then my expectations for this project go down. But <laughs> um, but it's more. Like now that thing is just gnawing at you, even though you have other things to do, Mm. you know, there's this thing that is wrong and what are you going to do about it? So you're tempted to kind of like drop everything, red alert, fix this problem when fixing the problem may not be the right thing to do at that moment. You know, like you said, like maybe like in the case of, the the hinges on John's door, like if he's going to put hinges on it, that hole in the wrong size needs to be addressed. So you kind of do it right then. Mm -hmm. But there are other times when, and I've learned this on a lot of stuff, especially smaller gaps or flaws. For me, I'm going to get a much better result if I just take a moment, move on to something else and address it when I'm done with like a wax filler stick or Mm -hmm. uh, a patch at the end of the project rather than to try and take care of it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I usually, I usually try to not, if I see something that I'm like, Oh crap, that was wrong. I usually try to let it simmer for a while. Um, yeah. you know, in, in a past life, I, I managed to print shop with, you know, a lot of employees and stuff. And I, I learned there that if I made a, a knee jerk reaction decision, without thinking it through there could be consequences down the road did that a few times mm-hmm. so it's like you know if i if i notice something on a project that's not like in the way of me proceeding with the project it's like let it stew and i'm just gonna think about it and i will yeah. just mill it over my head for a couple of days until i decide you know i, I think this is the best course to do <laughs> Most of the time, it's just making mm-hmm. the stupid part because <laughs> never have it with yeah. patches that I make. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, with this bandsaw box, you were kind of cursed from the beginning because 
when you first glued up the the blank, it was three inches instead of three and a half. Half and, inches, yeah. But which was fine because it's like it's not critical. It's just right. I mean, you can squish down the the pattern and keep going. It's I mean, it's a decorative piece. It's you know artsy. It can be whatever you want. So yeah, it was like yeah. I was just saying, there's that too. Is like there are instances where it's like there's no use in crying over spilt milk, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like three inches versus three and a half, that doesn't matter at all, mm-hmm. um, right? It's like this this little chest of drawers one I'm working on. This is shorter than the original by, well, I scaled the pattern at ninety percent because that's yeah. the stock I had. That mm-hmm. doesn't matter really. Um, and there's been stuff like that on a project that's happened. Where it's like, well, shoot, that's not what I meant to happen. But in the grand scheme of things, whatever just happened doesn't matter. Um, yeah. A good instance is uh, the trestle table we made on the show. The the arched trestle mm. table. Oh, uh, sure. The, the through tenant on that ended up being bigger than the plans by like an inch. Doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. It looks just fine. And nobody would look at that and say, you know what? I think that tenon is an inch too big. big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. No, for sure. And I think that's part of it, too, is, you know, there's the technical aspect of overcoming a, a flaw or a mistake or whatever. But then there's also the, you know, being able to get out of your own way, maybe, mm-hmm. in yeah, looking okay. at it. You know, like I said, like like you alluded to john the overall blank that i glued up for this block i misread the plans it should have been three and a half inches tall instead of three and then i was like well what do i do now and i mean the solution is really easy you know i just was able to instead of printing out the pattern full size i changed the proportions on it so it was only 85 percent high but still 100 percent wide Mm-hmm. Does that really change anything how the project works or looks? No, it's just a slightly different shape. You know, and if mm-hmm. you were to look at the two boxes, the original box and then my version <clears throat> on opposite ends of a room, I don't know that you'd be able to tell that they're different. Side by side you can, but even mm-hmm. then that's pretty subtle. Mm-hmm. But what was what was the three and a half inches to begin with? It was just something that Chris made up. You know right. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Arbitrary. Like, and... if. If if somebody gets into woodworking to follow step by step directions to a T and they have to do it, sorry, you should be an accountant, not a woodworker. <laughs> or a baker. Or yeah. a baker, yes. Yeah. That's it. You should be a baker. We're yeah. more of wood cooks than wood bakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you have to be flexible when you're mm. and even even if you don't know you're being flexible, changing a pro- changing a, a process or changing a material, that's being flexible, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. You have to be able to adapt to whatever you're working with. So, season to taste. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna ride this one for a while, I think. Yeah, I think so. So John's hungry. We know that now. Yeah. 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 So. All right. I think that does it for another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, we'd love to hear them. You can email them, woodsmith at woodsmith.com. The Shop Notes podcast is also available on YouTube. We have it on our YouTube channel. 
you can check that out. Uh, you can search under Woodsmith Shop for that. And there you can see some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, project updates. We'll also put some of those on our show notes page at woodsmith.com slash podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for the Shop Notes podcast. Bye, everybody. This episode of Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Plans. You'll find nearly a thousand plans covering everything that you'd want to build. From furniture projects to gift projects, kitchen accessories, workshop projects and jigs and more. Find your next project at woodsmithplans.com.